If you would stand with me, I'm going to read today's passage, which is Romans 1, 16 and 17. You're going to recognize this one. Just a couple verses today. These are the words of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, our time that we get to spend in the book of Romans over the next several years. Um, we, we ask, God, that you would not just uh, allow us to read the words, but the words would make our hearts soft, that they would penetrate the hardness of our hearts, and that you would create through your word um, fleshly hearts that are able to form to your character, to your will, and to your way. Um, as we start getting into the remainder of chapter 1, I pray that people's minds and hearts would be open to hear what you have to say regardless of how it offends them, how it challenges them, how it uh, makes them uncomfortable. We ask, God, that uh, we, we would be open by the power of your Spirit to hear what you have to say to us, and as you challenge us, uh, we would respond with repentance and belief. Thank you for, for our church. We're grateful for all of our friends, for our community here. We pray for healing. For those who are sick, we pray for restoration for relationships that have been damaged. We pray for repentance of sin where needed. And we ask, God, that you would form us as a body of missionaries uh, for your glory in this, uh, in this world so that many people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about living by faith. And one of the little preaching tricks that they teach you in seminary is to do a contrast. So uh, think about this, if you would, for a moment. Excuse me. What is the opposite of living by faith? What is the opposite of living by faith? If you think about that question, some might say that the opposite of living by faith is living in doubt or by doubt. Um, uh, maybe constantly having questions or, or doubt or, or considerations of what is true and what is not versus living by faith. But biblically, living by doubt is not an opposite of living by faith. The opposite of faith biblically is pride. It's pride. It, it's this uh, Hebrew idea of a swollen uh, a swollenness with a false sense of pride. We read about that in Habakkuk 2.4 where it says to the person that this Old Testament prophet, to the people that he's speaking to, he tells them that you're swollen, you're puffed up with a false sense of pride. It literally means that you are arrogant, you are haughty, and you are swollen like a growing cancerous tumor. Now, you might ask, why do I start this way? Again, there's a, a quote in the passage we look at today from Habakkuk 2.4. And we're going to look at that today. And, and in Habakkuk 2.4, it says that the righteous, uh, righteous shall live by faith. But we don't obviously uh, get to read the first part of that in the Romans quote of it. So I wanted to do that today. If you wanted to turn back to Habakkuk 2.4, you can. But let me read the whole verse so that you understand the context of what this Old Testament prophet is saying uh, to the audience that he is writing to. It says this in Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, the soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. 
but the righteous shall live by faith. You see the contrast says here that the soul, and he's talking in general about the human soul. So when you hear that he's speaking to people and he tells them that they are puffed up, they are prideful, they are swollen with arrogance and haughtiness like a growing cancerous tumor, don't think that it's the other person out there somewhere. All of the fingers that should be pointing anywhere should be pointing back at our own hearts because we have a puffed up soul that is not upright. It's the opposite of righteous. Uh, righteousness, however, are those people who live by faith. So this is one of the most important contrasts in the entirety of the Bible. And there are several of them throughout Scripture. But this is one of, if not the most important uh, of Scripture, because it delineates one of two options for all human beings. You can live in a state of righteousness. Now, I hope all of us would want that. And if you want that and you want to live by righteousness, you are going to be living by faith. Or, this is the only options, righteousness or prideful. And that is the soul of men without Christ. Arrogant, haughty, and swollen with pride. So, humility and righteousness... Go hand in hand. Sometimes we don't think of it that way because um, you might have heard the story about Ben Franklin where he chronicled in his diary how he has attained all these virtues that he listed except for the last one, which was humility. He was so prideful about attaining the ones that he had attained that that the uh, value or the virtue of humility was not going to be in his repertoire. And Some of us think of righteousness that way of, man, I am doing such a great job at this thing called life. Just this week, I helped someone across the street. You know, I I cleaned up after myself at the dinner table. Um, For husbands, I actually offered to do the dishes instead of having my wife do it for the thousandth time. Um, You know, we have these lists of good things that we do. We call it righteousness and we feel very puffed up by that. Uh, That is not what biblical righteousness looks like. Humility, true humility, and righteousness go hand in hand. So then the question is, what kind of humility is the Bible speaking about? Is Habakkuk speaking about? And is Paul speaking about? The kind of humility that they are speaking about is the kind that submits, relents, repents of our desire to be God and to recognize this important fact. We cannot, as human beings, have an innate or developed righteousness on our own. Welcome to reality. I just threw out the red pill for you. Okay? You do not have an innate or developed righteousness on your own. I don't care what your cause is. I don't care what good works you do. I don't care what you think righteousness is. You cannot, will not, shall not ever have an innate or developed righteousness on your own. This passage is claimed to be, that we look at today, it's claimed to be the one in conjunction with Habakkuk 2.4, that caused Martin Luther to repent of his godless, now remember, hear this statement, his godless 
moral behavior modification and to trust solely in Christ for his righteousness and redemption. Now I say that knowing full well that Martin Luther was a Catholic priest who felt like he was pursuing God by doing good things that he could put on his resume. So when I say it was a godless moral behavior modification program, it is the exact sense of what he was trying to accomplish without Christ that Jesus attacked the Pharisees for, saying to them, your works are filthy rags. You are whitewashed sepulchers. You think that your good stuff is earning more favor from God in and of yourself. And I tell you right now, you cannot have righteousness. You will not have righteousness. It shall not happen apart from the work of Christ. Period. So we get the Protestant Reformation as a result of Martin Luther understanding at the core of his being, in the depth of his heart, my moral behavior modification program that I tweet about, that I Facebook about, that I Instagram about, so the whole world will know what great things I am doing and how shameful those other humans are, will not, cannot, shall not be considered righteousness in the view of Almighty God. Christian, be encouraged. I love you, and so does Paul. Here we go. Now, this is really important because in chapter 1, I hope like you, you eat your Wheaties over the next several weeks. Okay? Because chapter 1, your spiritual Wheaties. Because chapter 1 is going to challenge you like you've never been challenged before. And you, like me, when you read it, when you hear it preached, and when you think about it, are going to have this word come up in your mind a lot. But, but... It's going to say, no, you are this. And you're going to go, no, 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 but I am so this. It's going to say, no, you're this. But I am so this. At the core of the gospel is understanding who you are in light of an eternal, perfect God. Okay? So Paul, here we go, in verse 16, says, I, and he says this important word first, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the four is there for a reason. Right before that, he's talking to the Roman Christians about how he longs to be sent to them to teach them and preach to them the gospel and to see other people get saved by the preaching of the gospel. And he says, for I am not ashamed of said gospel. Now, why does he say that? Well, there's an implication here. The implication is the Roman Christians are ashamed of the gospel. Now, the Denver Christians have nothing to worry about. We've never been ashamed of the gospel, right? Um, we, we never consider the gospel something that is to be quietly discussed in the very corners of our, you know, maybe I'll, I'll bring it up if the Lord takes his finger from heaven and writes on the wall, tell this person about Jesus. Maybe I'll do that. But it's, I just don't know. I'm kind of ashamed. We don't struggle with that. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Now, shame 
biblically gets a bad rap. In America today, if you go to many psychologists or even Christian counselors, they will spend much of their uh, time trying to get you to deal with your shame. To some, shame is just bad and should be forgotten. To others, shame is not altogether a bad thing. And the Bible speaks to the power of true shame leading to repentance, forgiveness, and true life. There is a shame that is rooted in lies and deception and should be dealt with with biblical truth. And for some, shame is sinful and it leads to other sins. But in the context of this passage, it's interesting that we as the church uh, have no shame. And I would say, especially in the American church, we have no shame in twisting scripture and misrepresenting God. But we are so ashamed to speak directly to the heart of people and tell them they are sinful and in need of a savior. Do Do you see in light of who you are, which I just went through, and in light of who God is, how crazy it is for us as quote-unquote followers of Christ to have no shame in twisting scripture, trying to make it sound a little bit more uh, happy and, and, you know, capitulate to the culture. Okay, we can do that. But we have no shame in doing that. And yet, Paul says... That we're ashamed of the gospel. That is the shame Paul is talking about when he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of what Jesus says is the truth about who you are and who God is. Now, let's unpack unpack a few of the terms. Number one, not ashamed. Not ashamed. Paul, as I said before, is speaking to a Roman Christian minority And the implication is that they are ashamed sometimes of the gospel. It is not popular to talk about the offense of sin against a perfect God that Jesus died for and only through Jesus Christ can you come to the Father. That's not a message that the Roman culture, the population, is is really interested in hearing. Now, let me equate or let me give you an example of a modern day Uh, situation that I see all the time. Unfortunately, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet. I just read other people's tweets. Um, And it's very unfortunate that I'm on Twitter. I should really get off because it can make you, you know, a little bit nutty at times and crazy at times just listening to people talk. I know some pastors on Twitter. Actually, some of them are um, friends of mine. I love them as fellow Uh, believers in Jesus Christ, but it's really interesting to me that their, um, their take on the gospel is I want to tell the, the people that are out there about the gospel part that talks about the restoration of all things, which is part of the gospel, right? We're, we're fallen people. We are created in the image of God. We have fallen Jesus redeems us if we're followers of Christ, and he is restoring all things back to himself, right? That's the four parts of the gospel message that are contained from Genesis to Revelation. So to talk about the restoration of all things is important, but my pastor friends are starting to say, we should lead with that. That's how we should get people 
to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by telling them that Jesus is going to restore all things. That is logically and biblically out of order. You will never win someone to Christ without presenting to them their main problem on the planet is their sinful heart separated from God that needs Jesus to redeem in order that they become a follower of Christ and then they get to enjoy the restoration of all things. If that first part doesn't happen, they're going to be watching the restoration of all things in a place called hell. That's not a great place to be to watch the restoration of all things. I don't know if they'll be able to see it actually, but my point is, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel And certainly none of us are ashamed of the part of the gospel where it says Jesus will restore all things. That's not what Paul is talking about because he goes on to qualify what he's talking about. The good news, the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of is again, not the restoration of all things here in this passage. The qualifier is the gospel is quote unquote, the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is the soteriological, meaning Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again for sin and salvation gospel. I have lost lots of friends right here. They want me to talk about the gospel only in the context of restoration of all things, I'm happy to do so. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm hoping I get restored to be about 6'2", 210, and about 5% body fat. That's what I'm hoping. I'm happy to talk about the restoration of all things, but the soteriological gospel is at the heart of the letter to the Romans, and it is at the heart of to the gospel uh, that Paul preaches, and I would say it's at the heart of the gospel that Jesus preaches. Okay? Some believe that the gospel is the uh, news of Jesus restoring all things, which he will, but the offensive part, and therefore the part that we are ashamed of, is the redemption part. So why are we ashamed? Here we go. We're ashamed because scripture clearly indicates, and folks, again, Romans 1 will tell you this. I wish I could preach the whole book, but it's going to take me a little while to get through Romans chapter 1. But Romans 1 clearly indicates that all human beings are sinners. And what that means is not that we just make mistakes on occasion. We are in active rebellion against a perfect God. Active rebellion against a perfect God, unless Jesus saves you, we'll get to that. That's where we are. It's not just kind of a passive going through life and, you know, uh, on occasion we make a little mistake. We say a little white lie or we're pretty good. Like we're 51% pretty good and 49% mistakes. It's 100% the condition of our heart is rebellion against a perfect God. 
And because of that fact, we, without Christ, are destined for hell. But God, in his mercy, sent his son Jesus, who died in your place for your sin that was deserved upon you. You're going to hear some words, even as soon as next week, like wrath. It's in the Bible. Mean old pastors didn't make up that word, okay? We have to speak it because it's in the text. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Without Jesus' atonement for your sin, you are destined for wrath. You have no righteousness. I hate to say it because, you know, the weather's nice. You might have a hike coming later or you can watch the Broncos try to squeak through a one-point victory and eat some barbecue. I don't know. I hope you have a great afternoon. But I got to tell you this. You are not a good person. You are not a good person. You are a person who has rebelled against God. And if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus paid for that rebellion. And he gives you a Holy Spirit that can reflect the character and nature of Jesus Christ through your life and change you. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Sanctify you is, is what the technical term is. He can make you appear to be, quote unquote, a better person. But in and of yourself, you are not a good person. You need, I need Jesus' righteousness. Your righteousness, Paul says, in this book is filthy rags, okay? Your righteousness, filthy rags. Jesus' righteousness, perfect. And only Jesus can give it to you. That is the only person that we can put our faith in. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of that gospel. That's the true gospel. I am ashamed. Paul would probably, if he was standing here, he'd be about this tall. And, and I'm not lying. The Bible says he was kind of ugly. Okay. Hopefully a little uglier than me, but maybe not. Maybe we're even part. He'd stand here, short, not pleasant to look at. Paul would look at you and say, I had more righteousness than you. I obeyed 600 plus Jewish laws to show God how dedicated I was to him and to show the mass of people what a wonderful person I am. Okay? The equivalent for us might be this. I contributed money to the right causes. I protested at the right protests. I wrote my senator when my senator was doing bad things. I, you know, was involved in my community. I volunteered at the, you know, whatever shelter. I did all those things. And I did them so that God would say, well done. That's, that's pretty good stuff. You get to make it without Jesus. That's how good you are. And I also did it so other people would look around and say, wow, what a great person that person is. 
Paul says that's not the way it works. Your righteousness is junk. You need Jesus' righteousness. And I can feel, because I feel it in my own heart, and I can feel it maybe coming from your hearts. That's kind of weird and esoteric, so maybe I don't feel it. I'm just using that as an analogy, okay? I feel you saying, man, this guy is so mean. He didn't see what I did this week, and how can I be not a righteous person, but in fact a rebellious, evil person? I feel so good about myself. Hey, I don't mind people feeling good about themselves if they've been saved by Jesus They know that Jesus is growing them by his power. And by Jesus' power, they will be perfected someday. You should feel awful good about that. Really good. Awful meaning awe of God doing that in your life. Really good about that. You feel good about anything else, it's going to shock you. Someday you're going to be shocked at how blind you were to your own state of understanding of what the gospel is is and why Paul not being ashamed of that being ashamed of trying to establish good works uh, he would say I am not ashamed of the gospel okay so why is Paul not ashamed and why should we not be ashamed okay here we go the gospel states clearly emphatically without hesitation that God is the only power source for salvation. Where did I get that? I got it from the Bible. Almost exact words. Paul's not ashamed, he says, right here in verse 16, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God is the only power source for your salvation. God is the only power source for your sanctification, your growing up. God is the only power source that creates in you a heart of flesh and takes away the heart of stone. Thank you, Andy, for the wonderful uh, illustration. And it is available to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, who believes? Like, who actually believes in Jesus? Because Guess what? Belief is a gift from God. You are in such rebellion that you can't even muster up enough belief in God. He has to give you that belief. That's how crazy uh, gracious and merciful he is. But who believes comes up later in Romans. It's talked about uh, many times. It's this term, the elect. That will be a fun series of sermons when we get to that, I'm sure. He says, first to the Jews... Because he revealed himself as a covenant-keeping God in the Old Testament, pointing the Jewish people to the Messiah and then to the Greeks. Through the Abrahamic covenant or the promise to Abraham, God said that through Abraham, through the Israelites, all nations will be blessed by the Messiah. That's why Paul is not ashamed. The gospel states that God is the only power source. It's available to everyone who believes. And it is the righteousness of God. This is what that means. This righteousness of God 
is the declared perfection of God that is given to people. What he's saying there is it's a gift that isn't earned. It's needed to avoid eternal separation because of your just uh, consequences of your sin. It's needed to have true meaning in life. It's needed, according to Colossians, just to keep the earth spinning. Like the righteousness of God is connected to the cosmos uh, continuing to spin and not just self-imploding. It's fifthly seen by God as perfect because of his free gift of perfect righteousness to believers. So, the gospel is the righteousness of God. You are declared righteous because of Jesus before God. No longer in rebellion. No longer in the consequences of your sin. No longer a slave to sin. You have the righteousness of God. In the courtroom of God, it's been declared your righteousness is the righteousness of God if you're a follower of Christ. And it is revealed from faith for faith. This is what that means. Salvation is by faith. Your growth in Christ is by faith. And your perfection or glorification is by faith. In other words, this gospel is revealed from faith to faith. This gospel is what keeps being revealed and sustained by God to help you grow and one day be perfected and live with Christ forever. Wow. I thought faith was something that I muster up, like I white-knuckle it. I get out my Excel spreadsheet, and I write down my 10 steps to faith. You can go to a lot of churches, and they'll actually preach the sermon series, Your 10 Steps to Better Faith. That is not what faith is. Faith is a gift from God that is sustained by God throughout the entirety of the life of the believer. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you think, man, I don't have this kind of faith, you're lying to yourself. Jesus has given you the gift of faith. And your pride and your sin is suppressing it. It's pushing it down. Romans chapter 1 will talk about the suppression of truth. It talks mostly about in the terms of a person who doesn't know Christ, they suppress the truth of Christ. But I think hints of suppression of truth can haunt the believer if they don't accept the truthful fact and reality that you have been given the faith of God by God, for God, with God's power to sustain it. Starting to crack my voice. I better calm down. So, when you ask this question in your life, God, why? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why is this so difficult? Why wouldn't you do it this way? Why are you doing it that way? You know what the answer is? It's the gift of faith that God has already given you. He has a plan. I don't care what you are going through 
And this is why Paul, by the way, says, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you know why? Because Jesus has a plan. Do you know what the plan was for Paul? Imprisonment, torture, snake bites, which freaked me out like of all of the things. That's the worst. And then his head cut off. That was the plan for Paul. And he had the gift of faith that all of us who are followers of Christ have. And he trusted that Jesus has a plan. And that's why he ends with this phrase. The righteous, you could almost say it this way. The righteous shall therefore live by faith. The righteous, therefore, shall live by faith. Let's go back to the introduction. The righteous do not live by pride in figuring out for themselves, controlling their life, behavior modification at all. All of these things that we do in our own pride to try and figure out life. Paul says that is the opposite of what you're called to do as a follower of Christ. The righteous will live by faith. It's a gift for your salvation and of your salvation. Let me explain that. God gives you the gift of faith to believe. And then he gives you the gift of faith to continue to grow as a result of your salvation. And all the while, if you're a follower of Christ and he has saved you, he looks at you and sees the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ given to your account. Now, with that said, I got to ask some questions. Why are we depressed? Why are we anxious? Why do we doubt? If all of that was done on our behalf, it's a no-brainer. The righteous will live by faith. Doubt seems to be a product of our pride and our questioning of God. And for those of you who say to many other followers of Christ, this horrible advice, please stop saying it. I've heard it even as recently as this week. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question. Folks, there are mysteries that we do not know about God. God is infinite and we are not. There are many mysteries, but I will say this. In the revelation of God, in these 66 books, and in the revelation of God, in the created order of the cosmos, you and I have enough truth about God and his goodness that you can trust him. So live by faith. You are saved by faith. You grow by faith. And you will be perfected or glorified by faith. And this is the reality that you need to trust in. It's already a gift in your life. So why do you, why do I refuse to submit to it by God's grace? Because Habakkuk to verse 4. Pride has puffed up in your life like a growing tumor 
of cancer. It's literally what the Hebrew word means. And cancer kills. Live by faith. Preach the gospel unashamedly. It's not about you and your unbiblical shame. It's the power of salvation. And people need it desperately. Everyone you walk into or run into this week at your workplace, in your community, in your neighborhood, desperately needs the power of salvation. And it is only through Jesus Christ that they can have it. If you don't believe me, read on in chapter 1 of the book or the letter to the Romans. It isn't just a nice thing for a person to have in their life. It is a desperate need. I don't care how great they look on the outside, how well put together everyone is. Whatever the case, from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, from the most beautiful to the least beautiful, everywhere in between, every human is desperate for the gospel. Preach it unashamedly. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, many times you just continue to prune away every false savior, every deceiving, tempting thought that I think will make my life better. And you bring it back to the reality that I, as a human being, have rebelled against you. You have sent your son Jesus to die in my place and to give me your perfect righteousness. And for those who believe, you have given them the gift of faith that you are saving them, you are growing them, and you will perfect them. And we continue to run to other things to try and delight in. I pray that we would come to this communion table and take this bread representing your body, dip it in the wine or the juice representing your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that at this table, we would repent of our behavior modification of our chasing after things that will not satisfy, we will proclaim that Jesus is Lord of our life and that he has a plan. We can trust in him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.